Hey there. Welcome to August, the most august month of the year. So august, in fact, that instead of trying to create an original podcast worthy of the month, I decided early on that August would always be an unapologetic and unabashed best of the rhythm of the seasons. Hope you dig it. I plucked a great, scary story from our October episode, which would be perfect to tell around a late summer campfire. The amazing Rose Portillo will join us to discuss her connection to family traditions. In honor of going back to school and high school and college football players reporting for duty, I'll revisit my thoughts on being part of a marching band. And John Ballinger, Double Batch Daddy, and Ann Kloss Farley and I will contribute musically. So, here we are. As I'm prepping this podcast on August 19th, 2023, Southern California is bracing to be hit by its first hurricane in recorded history. Hillary, a Category 3 hurricane with winds of up to 125 miles per hour, is expected to dump 3 to 10 inches of rain on the Southland before the weekend is over. I've lived in Los Angeles for 35 years, and I've noticed over that time that the summer weather has evolved from an intense, dry heat, like our wedding day, August 13th, 1994, where it was 113 on the west side of L.A., to a more humid, tropical feel, plus intense heat. Sunrise in L.A. came at 6.18, and it sets at 7.52 this evening, behind a bank of intense storm clouds, probably. I'm not too worried about the storm. It appears it'll hit hardest to our south and east, thanks to the San Fernando Valley being surrounded on all sides by mountains. We're praying for all the folks in our surrounding desert areas to stay safe and protected. But enough about the weather. August has the distinction of being the second month of the year to be named after a Roman emperor. Julius took July, which, of course, follows a month named after the goddess Juno. Leave it to the Romans to equate a human ruler with a goddess. So Augustus had to get in there, too. In my research on the origins of August, I discovered that once upon a time, there were only ten months on the calendar. January and February were simply ignored as a dark or dead time of the year. They didn't even qualify to be named. Then they started naming months with March, named after Mars, god of war. Typical. April comes from the Latin word aperio, meaning to open. Then back to the gods for Maya and Juno. And then the Romans essentially gave up and just started numbering the months. Quintilus, Sextilus, September, October, November, and finally, the tenth month, December. In an act of hubris worthy of a Greek tragedy, the Romans elevated their rulers to immortality by replacing Quintilus and Sextilus with Julius and Augustus, and here we are. August has transformed over my lifetime into the back-to-school month. This was not always the case. In my day, summer vacation ended the Tuesday after the Labor Day holiday weekend. When the new schedule for the school year was introduced here in Southern California, there was a veritable parental uproar. How 
dare you shorten the summer? That's actually not shorter, I explained. It does, however, allow the school year to end earlier in June when the weather is more temperate. That's a plus, right? The other argument went like this. Summer vacation isn't over until Labor Day. And why is that? Because that's the way it was when I was a kid. I had many opportunities to present a memory argument that served to counter this nostalgia card. Yeah, I feel you. Change can be hard. But remember those asshole teachers who used to assign homework over the Christmas holiday that had to be returned on the first day of class in January because the semester wasn't over yet? Remember spending your supposed holiday time fretting about all the finals coming up in January? Starting school in August allows the semester to end right before the winter holidays. Are you so in love with the last two weeks of sweaty August, named after sweaty Augustus, that you're willing to sacrifice the warm joys of the Christaquanaconza period? That usually shut them up. So, whether you're back to school or still eking out a little vacation time, I hope you'll enjoy this lazy summer collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons.
Ready for a scary story? I found this haunting piece in an anthology of short horror fiction way back in 1995. I loved it so much that I made it part of an evening of short audio dramas called Sounds in the Dark, which happened to be the first main stage show I directed at the Actors Gang. It immediately came to mind when I was casting about for something scary to present for our Halloween show last October. Take heed, though. It's properly scary, y'all. If you're sensitive to mildly graphic depictions of horrific situations, or if you have small kids nearby, you can skip forward about 17 minutes. Okay. You still with us? Here we go. Midnight by Jack Snow Between the hour of eleven and midnight... John Ware made ready to perform the ceremony that would climax the years of homage he had paid to the dark powers of evil. Tonight, he would become a part of that essence of dread that roams the night hours. At the last stroke of midnight, his consciousness would leave his body and unite with that which shuns the light and is all depravity and evil. Then he would roam the world with this midnight elemental, and for one hour savor all the evil that this being is capable of inspiring in human souls. John Ware had lived so long among the shadows of evil that his mind had become tainted, and through the channel of his thoughts his soul had been corrupted by the poison of the dark powers with which he consorted. There was scarcely a forbidden book of shocking ceremonies and nameless teachings that Ware had not consulted and pored over in the long hours of the night. When certain guarded books he desired were unobtainable, he had shown no hesitation in stealing them. Nor had Ware stopped with mere reading and studying these books. He had descended to the ultimate depths and put into practice the ceremonies, rites, and black sorceries that stained the pages of the volumes. Often these practices had required human blood and human lives, and here again Ware had not hesitated. He had long ago lost count of the number of innocent persons who had mysteriously vanished from the face of the earth victims of his insatiable craving for knowledge of the evil that dwells in the dark, furtively, when the powers of light are at their nadir. John Ware had traveled to all the strange and little-known parts of the earth. He had tricked and wormed secrets out of priests and dignitaries of ancient cults and religions, of whom existence the world of clean daylight has no inkling. Africa... The West Indies, Tibet, China, Ware knew them all, and they held no secret whose knowledge he had not violated. 
by devious means, Ware had secured admission to certain private institutions and homes behind whose facades were confined individuals who were not mad in the outright sense of the everyday definition of the word, but who, given their freedom, would loose nightmare horror on the world. Some of these prisoners were so curiously shaped and formed that they had been hidden away since childhood. In a number of instances, their vocal organs were so alien that the sounds they uttered could not be considered human. Nevertheless, John Ware had been heard to converse with them. In John Ware's chamber stood an ancient clock, tall as a human being and abhorrently fashioned from age-yellowed ivory. Its head was that of a woman in an advanced state of disillusion. Around the skull, from which shreds of ivory flesh hung, were Roman numerals marked by two death's head beetles, which, engineered by intricate machinery in the clock, crawled slowly around the perimeter of the skull to mark the hours. Nor did this clock tick as does an ordinary clock. Deep within its woman's bosom sounded a dull, regular thud, disturbingly similar to the beating of a human heart. The malevolent creation of an unknown sorcerer of the dim past, this eerie clock had been the property of a succession of warlocks, alchemists, wizards, satanists, and like devotees of forbidden arts each of whom had invested the clock with something of his own evil existence, so that a dark and revolting nimbus hung about it, and it seemed to exude a loathsome animus from its repellently human form. It was to this clock that John Ware addressed himself at the first stroke of midnight. The clock did not announce the hour in the fashion of other clocks, During the hour, its ticking sounded faint and dull, scarcely distinguishable above ordinary sounds. But at each hour, the clicking rose to a muffled thud, sounding like a human heartbeat heard through a stethoscope. With these ominous thuds, it marked the hours, seeming to intimate that each beat of the human heart narrows that much more the span of mortal life. Now the clock sounded the midnight hour. Thud, thud, thud. Before it stood John Ware, his body traced with cabalistic markings in a black pigment which he had prepared according to an ancient and noxious formula. As the clock thudded out the midnight hour, John Ware repeated an incantation which, had it not been for his devouring passion for evil, would have caused even him to shudder at the mere sounds of the contorted vowels. To his mouthing of the unhuman phrases, he performed a pattern of motions with his body and limbs, which was an unearthly grotesquerie of a dance. Thud, 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 the beat sounded for the twelfth time and then subsided to a dull, muffled, murmur which was barely audible in the silence of the chamber. The body of John Ware sank to the thick rug and lay motionless. The spirit was gone from it, 
at the last stroke of the hour of midnight, it had fled. With a great thrill of exultation, John Ware found himself outside in the night. He had succeeded. That which he had summoned had accepted him. And now, for the next hour, he would feast to his fill on unholy evil. Ware was conscious that he was not alone as he moved effortlessly through the night air. He was accompanied by a being which he perceived only as an amorphous darkness. A darkness that was deeper and more absolute than the inky night. A darkness that was a vacuum or blank in the color spectrum. Ware found himself plunging suddenly earthward. The walls of a building flashed past him and an instant later... He was in a sumptuously furnished living room, where stood a man and a woman. Ware felt a strong bond between himself and the woman. Her thoughts were his. He felt as she did. A wave of terror was enveloping him, flowing to him from the woman, for the man standing before her held a revolver in his hand. He was about to pull the trigger. John Ware lived through an agony of fear in those few moments that the helpless woman cringed before the man. And then a shapeless darkness settled over the man. His eyes glazed dully. Like an automaton, he pressed the trigger, and the bullet crashed into the woman's heart. John Ware died as she died. Once again, Ware was soaring through the night, the black being close at his side. He was shaken by the experience. What could it mean? How had he come to be identified so closely with the tortured consciousness of the murdered woman? Again, Ware felt himself plummeting earthward. This time, he was in a musty cellar in the depths of a vast city's tenement section. A man lay chained to a crude wooden table. Over him stood two creatures of loathsome and sadistic countenance. Then John Ware was the man on the table. He knew, he thought, he felt everything that the captive felt. He saw a black shadow settle over the two evil-looking men. Their eyes glazed. Their lips parted slightly as saliva drooled from them. The men made use of an assortment of crude instruments, knives, scalpels, pincers, and barbed hooks in a manner which in ten short minutes reduced the helpless body before them from a screaming human being to a whimpering, senseless thing covered with wounds and rivulets of blood. John Ware suffered as the victim suffered. At last... The tortured one slipped into unconsciousness. An instant later, John Ware was moving swiftly through the night sky. At his side was the black being. It had been terrible. Ware had endured agony that he had not believed the human body was capable of suffering. Why? Why had he been chained to the consciousness of the man on the torture table? Swiftly, Ware and his companion soared through the night, moving ever westward. John Ware felt himself descending again. He caught a fleeting glimpse of a lonely farmhouse with a single lamp glowing in one window. Then, he was in an old-fashioned country living room. In a wheelchair, 
an aged man sat dozing. At his side, near the window, stood a table on which burned an oil lamp. A dark shape hovered over the sleeping man. Shuddering in his slumber, the man flung out one arm restlessly. It struck the oil lamp, sending it crashing to the floor, where it shattered, and a pool of flame sprang up instantly. The aged cripple awoke with a cry and made an effort to wheel his chair from the flames, but it was too late. Already the carpet and floor were burning, and now the man's clothing and the robe that covered his legs were afire. Instinctively, the victim threw up his arms to shield his face, and then he screamed piercingly again and again. John Ware felt everything that the old man felt. He suffered the inexpressible agony of being consumed alive by flames. And then he was outside in the night. Far below and behind him, the house burned like a torch in the distance. Ware glanced fearfully at the shadow that accompanied him as they sped on at tremendous speed, ever westward. Once again, Ware felt himself hurtling down through the night. Where to this time? What unspeakable torment was he to endure now? All was dark about him. He glimpsed no city or abode as he flashed to earth. About him was only silence and darkness. Then, like a wave engulfing his spirit, came a torrent of fear and dread. He was striving to push something upward. Panic thoughts consumed him. He would not die. He wanted to live. He would escape. He writhed and twisted in his narrow confines, his fists beating on the surface above him. It did not yield. John Ware knew that he was linked with the consciousness of a man who had been prematurely buried. Soon the victim's fists were dripping with blood as he ineffectually clawed and pounded at the lid of the coffin. As time is measured, it didn't last long. The exertions of the doomed man caused him quickly to exhaust the small amount of air in the coffin, and he soon smothered to death. John Ware experienced that, too. But the final obliteration and crushing of the hope that burned in the man's bosom probably was the worst of all. Ware was again soaring through the night. His soul shuddered as he grasped the final, unmistakable significance of the night's experiences. He, he was to be the victim, the sufferer throughout this long hour of midnight. He had thought that by accompanying the dark being around the earth, he would share in the savoring of all the evils that flourish in the midnight hour. He was participating, but not as he had expected. Instead, he was the victim, the cringing, tormented one. Perhaps this dark being he had summoned was jealous of its pleasures. Or perhaps it derived an additional intensity of satisfaction by adding John Ware's consciousness to those of its victims. Ware was descending again. Was there no resisting the force that flung him earthward? He was completely helpless before the power he had summoned. What now, what new terror would he experience? On and on, ever westward through the night, John Ware endured horror after horror. He died again and again, each time in a more fearsome manner. 
He was subjected to revolting tortures and torments as he was linked with victim after victim. He knew the frightening nightmare of human minds tottering on the abyss of madness. All that is black and unholy and is visited upon mankind he experienced as he roamed the earth with the midnight being. Would it never end? Only the thought that these sixty minutes would pass sustained him. But it did not end. It seemed an eternity had gone by. Such suffering could not be crowded into a single hour. It must be days since he had left his body. Days, nights, sixty minutes, one hour. John Ware was struck with the realization of terrific impact. It seemed to be communicated to him from the dark being at his side. Horribly clear did that being make the simple truth. John Ware was lost. Weeks, even months might have passed since he had left his body. Time for him had stopped still. John Ware was eternally chained to the amorphous black shape and was doomed to exist thus horribly forever. Suffering endless and revolting madness, torture, and death through eternity, he had stepped into that band of time known as Midnight and was caught, trapped hopelessly, doomed to move with the grain of time endlessly around the earth. For as long as the earth spins beneath the sun, one side of it is always dark, and in the darkness... Midnight dwells forever. Before we get back to the show, I want to take a moment to say thank you to you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for following us, and thank you for the donations you've made to keep this podcast coming your way month after month. I'd originally envisioned a weekly collection of stories, songs, and conversations, but without being able to clear my schedule for 20 to 30 hours a week to prepare for that, and without the resources to pay a staff to help with the writing, editing, and coordinating, a once-a-month podcast became a more realistic goal. God knows, none of us are getting rich doing this, but none of us are going poor either. We're breaking even, I'd say. And that's because you took a couple of minutes to head to livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com. You click the donate button and shared a little bit of your own gratitude with us. Thanks. You might know Rose Portillo from her recent turn as Senora Guzman, mother of the hunky boyfriend Mariano in Disney's Encanto. I know her from her work with Luis Valdez in Zoot Suit, in which she played Della in the original production in 1978 and came back to play Della's mom, Dolores, in the recent revival. In addition to being a superb actress, Rose is a wonderful artist, and like all the best artists, 
Her art informs her life, and her life informs her art to the point where art and life entwine in a magical dance where the give and take of the two become seamless and sublime. I invited Rose to return to the lounge because she'd been a lot on my mind lately. And really, any excuse to spend time with Rose Portillo is one I'm going to take. Welcome back to the the lounge. I am so grateful that you made time in your super jam-packed schedule to take a little minute to talk about this time of year. The theme of this month's podcast is looking back and taking stock. And you just kept coming into my mind as Mm. I was thinking about people to talk to because we talked last year as a kind of an introduction to the los Muertos and the Ofrenda and all of that. And I just thought I need to go a little deeper and I want to go a little deeper with you about how you use the Ofrenda to look back, to take stock, to make peace with relatives um, and challenges in your life. Tell us a little bit about this home that you live in. I live in the house I was born into, which means I was not born in the house. I did go. My mother went to a hospital. (laughs) This is where I came back uh, with my, my father's parents, my mom and me. And we lived in this house for seven years. My grandparents remained in this house every weekend, every weekend, which was often a comfort. And then it became a burden. My great grandmother and my godparents, every weekend they came over. So every Sunday we were together. Everybody in the house. Yeah. And so. What were the days like? What were those days like? Well, that was fun because because my um, my godparents were fun and the noise of the house was great and um, my aunt and my mom were big laughers. Um, my grandfather loved the, having the company around. Um, yeah, he was a scenic painter for Paramount and Columbia, mm. so. Um, he, he made a decent living, and that's why they were able to move from uh, Wood Flap House to, to this house. And so that was great. And then the, the weekdays, in the beginning, everybody worked except my aunt. So I would go to Lincoln Heights, and she would raise me, and that was great fun. My great-grandmother scared me a little bit because she was just very, very wrinkled and didn't, never hardly ever spoke, you know, always, and always was in black. So, so that was a little scary. So there's a rich history of your family being in this house. Correct. And I'm assuming many, if not all of those folks have passed on. All of them. All of them are, are gone. All of them. And what is your experience with their presence in the, right. in the home now? So my, my long story of uh, setup is that once I was alone with my grandmother, it was not pleasant. She was a bitter woman. Mm. So, um, and we fought. As I grew, uh, we fought. And she was very manipulative. And so I put a lot of distance between us. So I didn't want to come back into the house because I was afraid 
of her spirit in the house. But circumstances were such where my mother went, the house is there. Mm -hmm. And the only option if you don't go into it is for it to be sold. So I slept on it and then went, she's right. What I actually need is um, a reckoning and a healing. Yeah. And the only way I can actually heal is to transform the place. And how did so, that how did that begin? So um, it it began with paint, <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. emptying everything <laughs> out, uh-huh. and um, the very pristine colors just changed into very bold colors. There have been many moments in in my life where someone has said, "I feel like there's a presence here. I feel like there's." A woman who knows this house very well and knows you and is very confused by what's going on, but she's intrigued and happy. So I thought, well, that's really interesting because I feel at peace with her now. Was there a, um, was it a gradual process or did you feel that there was a turning point moment? where that happened? The turning was in living my life as myself on a daily basis and ignoring any feelings of judgment. So I would say that um, my awareness was always heightened and um, I already had the practice of Day of the Dead when I moved back into this house and I always honored anyone who gave me difficulty was always honored, is always honored on, on the altar. Tell me about that tradition of the, of the Dia de los Muertos and the building of ofrendas. So there are two days um, of the Dias de los Muertos, the first and the second. And the first is designated for children, saints, and angels. And the second is for all the rest of us, <laughs> you know, sinners, <laughs> all, the, all the sinners. I think of it as um, always you're, you're honoring those that are close to you and have taken a part in making you who you are. But to be truthful, all the difficulties and the traumas also make us who we are. So that needs to be acknowledged. And I think beyond acknowledgement is an honoring. And what I have come to recognize in this very long, slow journey with my grandmother, and I'll include my father in that, is that it's not over. And, and the good news is that healing is still possible, and that includes them. There have been moments where I knew she was happy and I knew we were at peace. And then I knew she wasn't leaving because she was afraid. Oh, wow. So, wow. so I have a particular ghost story <laughs> as well where I had to banish her. And I, I went several years not putting her photograph up, not welcoming her back welcoming with my heart, but not really not allowing her spirit into the house. 
Yeah. Because she didn't know how to come and go. She only knew how to stay. And that was going to be hurtful. Right. Eventually to me. It was going to keep me in place. So the practice Uh of the ofrenda. So the practice of the ofrenda, traditionally you're honoring, you're honoring ancestors. You put up a photograph. You put up for us the marigold. We burn incense. We light candles. And when it's someone you know, you you want things that they enjoyed, think that things that they loved. You know, what was the booze they liked? It goes on the table. You know, what yeah. was, we, we cook foods that are traditional because we all grew up eating them. So it, that's a welcoming too. It is not a mourning. It is, it is an embracing. This is a lovely thing that, um, that a relative said to me. And she said, here's why I want you to do it. And here's why I want you to let us come again. I brought my son several times and he just was caught up in the, you know, he got caught up in the pageantry of mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. as a boy. Then he was in high school and a tragedy happened. And he, without asking, brought a photograph of his best friend who had died. Yeah. And he put it on the altar. And she said, in every year, he comes and he looks at the altar and he sees the photograph and he sees his grandmother. He sees his great grandmother. And this offers him a timeline, an acknowledgement of people who cared for him that are integrated into this extended family, this extended chosen family and actual family and it makes ancestry tangible are you working on an ofrenda this year so i am um, tell me about that this year a very stalwart organizer community member um passed on isa k mexon so i was invited to do an altar at um, grand park and I thought, oh, I can't do what I do at home there. I need to be very selective. Isa um, came from Ukraine in the 30s as a a child. So I know that about her. I know her more um, as a, you know, resident of Echo Park, uh, uh, always fighting with City Hall, always fighting the good fight, always being very annoying. Uh, but, but we all love her because of what she's about. Mm-hmm. So um, I decided to honor her at Grand Park. And and the, when I was talking to the curator and, and I went for the walkthrough and to pick her my location, I said, um, she's got to be facing City Hall. That's all I know. She has to literally face City Hall. So we found the spot and... and um, First of all, it's a beautiful view of City Hall she has. Then we turned around just to see, it, you know, check out the space itself and what are going to be the issues and blah, blah. She is right next to a plaque honoring the Ukrainians who came in the 30s. Yeah. I mean, it, ju- it just like, yeah, this is exactly where she needs to be. 
She was all about recycling. So uh, a puppet master and I um, got together and out of recycled materials, we've her favorite bird was the hummingbird. So we've mm. made hummingbirds. So there will be hummingbirds for her. And she had given another, because she adored artists. So I called this artist for help. And she said, I can't help you. But I have something she gave me that I don't know what to do with. And I think you will know what to do. So if you don't mind. When she was 15 or 14, um, her parents sent her to a summer camp and she took art classes and on the back of a receipt book, she drew in pencil. And there are all these beautiful abstract drawings. It's, it's a receipt book and it's like you just grab whatever's around to do what you are compelled to do. So she actually was an artist who decided politics were more important. Yeah. So I'm going to try and pull some of those up and instead and that and make that the cloth. For Beautiful. Her. I mean, once again, like just going and being open and knowing a little bit about what you want. Yes. And then discovering all of those. Yes things that start to come to you yes. when you make your intention known. That yeah. intentionality is what allows you to recognize when yeah. things show there's, up. There's no wrong way to do it. So if someone hears this story of, of your home and this altar and this tradition, where can someone begin? What advice would you have to someone who thinks like, I would like to begin this tradition in my own home? Just sit with memory. And then if you don't have a photograph, just write the name down and, you know, find a little countertop or table and make it pretty, make it um, special. And they'll tell you what they would like. So to be listening as well. Yeah. yeah. Listening is huge. Yeah.
If you're a regular listener to The Lounge, you'll remember that we started the year with a dream rather than a resolution, because we understand that it takes planning and intention to create sustainable change in our lives. We spent February modifying those dreams by discovering what's holding us back and letting go so we can move forward. And here we are with a clear vision and a lightened load. We're ready to march. And yet, the instruction or the order to march, for me, is fraught. In my days on this earth, I've performed with a lot of groups. I've been in Shakespeare companies, I've been a singing waiter, I've sung in countless choirs and played in countless bands. I've performed in front of audiences of thousands and i performed for less than ten. I love making art with people. Hasn't always been easy, hasn't always been fun, but it's usually been worth it. There is one performing group I chose to be a part of over and over again that still mystifies me. Marching band. I joined a marching band my freshman year in high school, and that meant a trip to marching band camp. Now, I've spoken about my other experience with band camp before, the year between fifth and sixth grade where I had an epiphany where reading music finally made sense to me. That was a life-changing week. Marching band camp was a little more like an S&M retreat for teens. 
where band camp had consisted mostly of rehearsals in a shady courtyard, concert band in the morning, jazz band in the afternoon, with lots of canoeing and swimming and hiking and snacking and lounging thrown in between. On the first day of marching band camp, we all lined up on a dusty field in a hundred degree heat, and we learned to stand at attention. Middle fingers on the seam of our pants, shoulders back and down, head held high, knees straight but not locked. Don't lock your knees, the conductor and the upperclassmen would scream at us. We found out why when the first trumpet player fell face first into the dirt with the rigidity of a two-by-four and the stomach-churning sound of a 150-pound sack of meat hurled off the back of a truck. I think he broke his nose. But it's possible that he just took an ice pack and a Gatorade in the shade, shook it off, and came back for more. Once we'd all learned to stand still without losing consciousness, we began the task of marching up and down the field. The key was to instill in us the glide step, a precise 22-and-a-half-inch stride that rolled so smoothly from heel to toe that the rest of our bodies wouldn't bounce up and down at all. Our phalanx would appear to simply glide smoothly across the field. We practiced with books balanced on our heads, keeping our heads up and our eyes forward. The key to the 22-and-a-half-inch stride was the 8-to-5, eight steps for every five yards marked on the hot and dusty practice field with white chalk lines. The drummers would mark time, and we would count off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, line. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, line. This is how we spent most of the first day and the second and many future rehearsals marching up and down the field. My feeling about this aspect of marching band is best summed up by this clip from Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Everybody else. Quite content to join in with my little scheme of marching up and down the square. Sarge? Yes, Wycliffe, what is it? Well, I'm uh, learning the piano. Learning the piano? Yes, Sarge. And I suppose you want to go and practice, eh? Marching up and down the square, not good enough for you, eh? Well... Right, off you go! Now, what about the rest of you? We went on to learn how to turn to the right and turn to the left and turn all the way around with uniformity and precision. We learned to play classic Sousa marches and square versions of popular songs really loudly. If I remember correctly, there was an arrangement of Earth, Wind & Fire's September that had been run through an arrangement for marching band machine designed to suck all of the playfulness and joy out of any song. And then there were the uniforms. Twelve and a half pounds of polyester that managed somehow to provide in equal measure exactly no protection from the cold and exactly no relief from the sun. The two-foot-tall furry hat called a shako, would balance precariously and uncomfortably on one's head as you marched for miles at a time, intermittently playing your instrument as loudly as you possibly could. Looking back, I find the impact-to-reward ratio of participating in marching band to be almost comically low. You put in so much effort, one literally spends hours learning how to walk, turn right and left, and play lousy music louder than anyone wants to hear it, and your reward 
is a fleeting glance at a parade? Or the opportunity to sit on metal bleachers in the worst possible clothes every Friday night from late summer to early winter? Why did I do it? Why did I go back and keep doing it year after year? Why did I think it was a good idea to join UCLA's marching band when I was 21 years old? I knew better. I can't tell you what compelled me to keep going back. It's a mystery. To this day, though, I do love the sound of a marching band. And I celebrate the precision and the passion of the folks who are dedicated to this art form and who do it well. The truth of the marching band experience may be that the beginning of any endeavor is rarely glamorous. There's something truly wonderful about belonging to an orchestra or a choir. The chance to be a small part in a larger organism that brings pleasure to others. To be at the center of a sound that can only be made by a large number of people all working together is a powerful feeling. It's worth the time it takes in rehearsal to learn that when the key changes from B-flat to C, you need to play a B-natural or it's going to sound awful. And there's a good possibility it's going to sound awful for a bit until you learn and internalize the roadmap. There is a point in every rehearsal of every play I've ever been in or directed where the actors are just starting to put their scripts down and it's awful to watch. I remember talking to a director about this moment one day after a rehearsal. That was painful, I said, and he replied, This is the time in the rehearsal when we come closest to living out the actor's nightmare, where you're on stage and you have no idea what play you're in. It passes. But yeah, it's painful. Remember the story of the little red hen? The red hen invites all the other animals on the farm to help her plant and grow some wheat. They all turn her down. Later, she invites them to help harvest the grain and grind it into flour. No one wants to help. After that, she invites them to help her make and bake the bread. Everyone is too busy. But once the bread is baked and ready, everyone wants to help eat it. The little red hen is a marcher. She knows that the road to delicious bread is paved with work that no one wants to do. The members of your favorite band are marchers. The shows we go to see and the albums we love to listen to are products of years of unglamorous work, learning to play or sing. Your favorite athletes have done a metric shit ton of marching up and down the square, the diamond, the pitch, or the ice to be able to make it all look easy on a Sunday afternoon. The food we eat is a product of countless marchers who plant, grow, ship, prepare, and serve it to us. You want a beach body? It's time to march. You want to lose 20 pounds? The unglamorous part of that journey starts right now. Writing a novel or a screenplay? It'll be fun when it's done. You'll have a blast watching others enjoy it. It's going to take a lot of marching up and down the square to get there. Truth is, it's worth it to work hard, to achieve something beautiful, productive, or useful. It's worth it to put in the sweaty, lonely hours to feel good about something you've accomplished. Just know that the most important part of making your dreams come true 
involves a dedication to do everything necessary to make it happen. Just make sure all of your marching is taking you somewhere you actually want to go. As we spring into action, we want to hear where you're marching to. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or email us at livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com. And that's August. We hope you enjoyed returning to some of our favorite pieces from the last three seasons. Next month, we'll be back with a whole new episode, and we hope you'll like that too. Here's the Who Did What. The Rhythm of the Seasons is produced by Anne Kloss Farley. Our theme song was written and performed by John Ballinger. Anne and I sang Dream, What a Dream That Was. Happy 29th anniversary, my love. Double Batch Daddy composed and performed I Am Not Alone. They've got a new album coming out soon, and I can't wait to share it with you. Charles Dayton provided soundscape for The Big Question. It was so gratifying to return to my conversation with Rose Portillo. She is simply a delight. She and I are on strike right now, so we're not promoting anything until the producers come to their senses and realize that they can still make bags of money while paying creatives fairly. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another all-new collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. <laughs>